Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Eliza Player. She is the author of Heroin, Hurricane Katrina, and The Howling Within, an addiction memoir. Oh, I should say, today it is September 25th of 2014, and we're going to bring Eliza on in one second after we do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habit, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. We're going to bring our guest, Eliza Player, on right now. How are you doing this evening, Eliza? I'm pretty good. Enjoying well, the weather in Texas. To... It's not too hot. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. It's not too... it's nice in New York City, too. So tell us a little bit about your book. Um, so, so tell us, well, it's uh, autobiographical, it's memoir. So tell us uh, about uh, your life when you were involved with heroin. Um, essentially, my my book is a it's a memoir of just a short little period of my life, um, basically surrounding Hurricane Katrina. I remained in New Orleans um, during the storm. Um, I was addicted to heroin, and to me, I wasn't going to leave and go. I, I didn't have enough dope to go through the the storm without getting sick anyway. So I wasn't going to leave and go to a strange place where I couldn't score and was inevitably going to face withdrawal. So I just stayed where I was. So the book actually starts about two weeks before the storm, so it kind of places you where I was in my life. And I um, was working at a strip club and uh, pretty much living in a motel, um, staying with friends type of thing. Um, and I think at the point of the storm, I was actually staying with friends at that time. But um, it basically follows me through the storm, through the evacuation from New Orleans. Um, I was in... I was in Middleton, Rhode Island, actually, for about three months after the storm, and then I returned to New Orleans for three months. So the book follows me through my return to New Orleans as well. Okay. Uh, Well, tell us a little bit about what happened when the storm was going through. Uh, What was going on? Well, when the storm itself went through, I was so sick from withdrawal that I was in bed. I had some Seroquel to help me sleep a little, and I really don't remember much about the storm itself. And in a way, that's one of the things I kind of regret because I think it would have been really amazing and scary at the same time to see some of it. But I do remember, like, hearing the wind howling, and I remember hearing branches hit my window a lot. And the thing that I remember the most is when the, the air conditioning right above my head cut off. You know, I was really aware that it cut off, and I knew the power had gone off, and I thought to myself, oh, it's going to get hot in here soon. You know, so um, it was really the craziest thing, really, was when I essentially came out of the withdrawal several, you know, I guess it was a day after the storm, um, or the it was a not even quite a day, about a half a day after the storm. And it was early in the morning, and I got up and, like we do on the third day of a kick. I rummaged through everything looking for dope and ended up finding like a half a bag. So when I went into the bathroom, there was enough light coming through the window that I didn't even really realize that the power was out 
Um, even though I had known it, you know, I did it. It was so light in there, and I turned the water on. I used the water to get my shot, and the water was working just fine. And so I walked up, the, you know, I walked out of the little apartment and up the stairs. It was like a big house with apartments in it. And when I walked out onto the balcony, I was so surprised because the sun was really bright and the sky was really blue and it was really peaceful. And it wasn't until I looked down that I realized that everything was flooded. As I say in my book, the streets had turned to rivers. You know, and there was people out there and it was like way steep. It was really crazy. Mm-hmm. So essentially, um, yeah, I mean, from there it just got really, really, really crazy. Um We ended up breaking into a pharmacy because so many of my friends that I were with were dirt sick and um, ended up getting a whole bunch of pills and uh, witnessed an OD and uh, trudged around in the water for quite some time. And, yeah, it was pretty wild. So how long did you stay in uh, New Orleans afterwards? I was there for 13 days afterwards. I was actually some of the last people to get out. Um, in the beginning, there was people everywhere. There was people in boats. There was people walking around. There was the neutral ground on Esplanade, which is this big, it's like a big grass median. It was just full of people those first few days. I saw all kinds of people I know. But as the days went on, it got more and more sparse. And when I finally ran into the military and was told that I had to evacuate or go to jail, it was very deserted at that point. You know, there was debris everywhere. A lot of the water had receded, at least near the, you know, in the, like the Treme area where I was. Um, Mm -hmm. So I kind of saw it, you know, when there was a lot of people there and then when there was nobody there, too. Mm -hmm. And tell me about when you evacuated. It was that was really crazy. Um, I had no intentions of evacuating without any power or access to television. Like I really didn't understand the scope of the damage, and I really because I was near the quarter in the Treme, and there was really not even water on Bourbon Street. So the deepest water I saw was about above my waist a little bit, um, and that was like in the deep parts where the neutral ground was more like at your knees, you know, like six feet away. Um, so mm-hmm. I really didn't understand how bad it was, and I really truly thought that the city was going to open back up in a matter of weeks, and, you know, I knew the club would open back up, and I needed to get back to work, and that's what I thought. So the military ended up finding me wandering around one morning and pretty much said jail or evacuate, and at that point, of course, there was no choice. It was evacuate. Um, and they mm-hmm. ended up saying, like, I had told the guy, well, the military guys, you know, my husband, he's my ex-husband, ex-husband now, but my husband is back at the place and I can't leave without him. So they agreed to come the next morning and get us. And it was, God, the sun was hardly, I mean, peeking up. It was still dark outside. And it's, it was, I expected a military truck to pull up, but an ambulance actually pulled up. And we got in the back and there was a lady back there that had seven cages of cats or um, and she wasn't going to evacuate without the cats. And until they got the cats, mm-hmm. she wouldn't leave. Um, I had, and I had no idea where we went because it was so dark in the back of the ambulance. And when we got out, it was just like something that they had set up somewhere. I have a feeling it was near the bus station. But um, there was pallets of, like, M- MRI meals. And I think that's what they're called, M- MRE meals and raviolis and soda and stuff like that. And we sat around there for hours. 
And then finally we ended up on a bus and ended up out at the airport. And when I got to the airport, it was crazy because there was trash piled up everywhere, like to the ceilings. There was people laying around everywhere. We just, like, got a seat on the floor, and we had gotten a bunch of liquor that we put in Sprite bottles, and we had all the pills that we had taken. So we were, you know, we were pretty insulated from a lot of the pain and everything, Um Mm-hmm. And at one point, these the, some of the airline officials came over and they said, we have two slots left on this plane. Um, do y'all want to take it? And we were like, well, we need to maybe get to North Carolina or Virginia where our parents are. And they said, don't worry about it. Just get on any plane and we'll get you where you need to go eventually. So we ended up getting on the plane and nobody knew where we were going. And we got up in the air and the pilot started talking and he said, you know, that they were going, that we were going to Middleton, Rhode Island. And the panic on the plane was unreal because a lot of the people had never <laughs> even left New Orleans. You know, when they realized they were going mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, New York, mm-hmm. I mean, I really thought some people were going to try to jump out of the plane. Um, mm-hmm. By the time we finally landed, everyone was just so exhausted, though. And um, we landed, it was it was it was an apartment complex that was used, or we stayed in an apartment complex that was used for military that they didn't use anymore so i guess the plane landed on a military base there that's what it seemed like they had like military tents set up and um you know they got us food right away and they shuffled us through these doctor's offices but they were set up in military tents so it wasn't actually like an office it was really strange to be like in a tent on a metal table and having the doctor look at you um but they ended up putting us up in apartments there, and, you know, they gave us food stamps and health insurance. And, you know, a lot of people did get to get new glasses, which they hadn't had in years. And, you know, um, the people there were really kind. They brought, like, tons of clothing and toiletries, and we had anything that we needed. But going to Rhode Island, like, in New Orleans, in the service industry, it's really slow in the summertime because it's so hot. So then we go to Rhode Island. I actually landed in Rhode Island on September 11th. And um, it was already slowing down there, so there was no work to be found. It was getting cold. And um, I ended up leaving Rhode Island after three months there. And I ended up going to see my father-in-law who was dying. And I, by this time, I had PTSD so bad. Like, I had never experienced mm-hmm. anything like this insane anxiety like I couldn't sit down to eat food I had to pace around the table and take a bite every time I went past because I just had so much like I was just crawling out of my skin like I didn't sleep and eventually on this trip out of town um, I ended up going to I I didn't sleep for like 10 days and I ended up going to the hospital and ended up in um, at first they put me in treatment But after three days in treatment where I couldn't sit still and couldn't, you know, I was pacing around constantly and I wasn't sleeping and, you know, my insanity at that point from not sleeping for so long was, you know, really bad. Um, And Mm -hmm. they ended up switching me from the treatment center to the psych ward. And at first I think that they just didn't believe that it was PTSD. You know, my mother was there to help, and she certainly didn't believe it. They all thought it was very drug-induced, and so that's why I ended up there in treatment. But eventually they were like, okay, she definitely needs to be in the psych ward. And once they put me in the psych ward and they gave me some medicine to sleep and 
put me on medicine. It took me about eight more days to completely stabilize, and then they released me. And then I returned to New Orleans for several months mm-hmm. and ended up using mm-hmm. again in New Orleans and um, lost another friend to an OD. And that was kind of when I was like, okay, I need to leave here. It was just really sad to go back and see this place I love so much in complete and total ruin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was just, it also was hard to find work. And um, it also, you know, I kind of at that point had lost so much that I realized that I needed to do something to change. Mm-hmm. So, did you detox off of uh, heroin in the uh, psych ward? And uh, well, in the three days in treatment I had that, was that when you started uh, detoxing? You know, I'll tell you something really, really interesting about this, actually. I was on methadone in Rhode Island, and when my Mm -hmm. father-in-law got sick, I also was struggling with the PTSD so bad that I missed my clinic a lot. And I would stay Mm -hmm. up drinking, try to go to sleep, and sleep through the clinic. So I had very irregular attendance. I had all positive drug screens. Um, I was doing, I was smoking crack at the time because, I if I paced around the table then nobody thought I was weird, <laughs> you know. So um I just kept missing the clinic and then when I asked to go on this trip and guest dose, they denied me the ability to do it. So I pretty much had a choice to make. I could stay in Rhode Island or go and I decided to go ahead and go. Um and I knew that I would face withdrawal. Um and I had a few pills to help me. I had some clonidine, and I also had some Tylenol threes. But I not maybe I might have had some Klonopins too, or something. Um, mm-hmm. But the strangest thing was because I was I was drawn from heroin so many times, and I also withdrew from methadone another time after this. But I honestly did not hardly have any withdrawal symptoms at all. And I think it was Mm -hmm. because of the PTSD. You know, I was just Mm -hmm. so overtaken by the anxiety that it was almost like I didn't have time to feel any of the withdrawal. Um, Mm -hmm. And in -hmm. in the hospital, at one point I did start having some withdrawal symptoms, and they took me to a different area, and they gave me some IV phenogran, and then ended up, you know, sending me back to um, the psych ward. But um, it was actually, I was still in the treatment center at that time. But in comparison to all the other times I've gone through withdrawal, it was really, really minimal, which was mm-hmm. really bizarre mm-hmm. to me. But I think it's just the PTSD. It could the be. mind is it a powerful thing. It is. It's very, it's very interesting. It's very complex. It's very difficult to, uh, you know, predict what's going on with people. So, you know, people that have simple answers that always say, I know what's going to happen in your brain, I don't believe them at all. <laughs> right. So so you went back to New Orleans and uh, a friend of yours overdosed, and that's when you decided to turn everything around? Yeah, and, you know, that is that was the turning point, really. Um, the storm was sort of a turning point. You know, because you kind of realize how precious life is when you go through something like that. Um, And it wasn't that, at that point, I didn't walk away forever. But at that point, you know, after my friend overdosed and I realized how much I lost, I decided to make a change. And it took me a while to figure it out. 
So did you go on methadone then, or what did you do? Um, actually, no, um, not at that time. I ended up um, going back to, um, after I left New Orleans, I ended up going back to Virginia, and I went through withdrawal from heroin there. Um, and then I was stayed, I stayed off opiates for a while and I was living with my cousin's mother and, um, ended up after that, I did end up getting back into heroin and there was really, the supply was really not very good where I was and I was always sick. So I did end up getting back on methadone. And I, for that, then I started actually finally doing really good on methadone. Um, I got to a higher dose, and I think um, part of it was that my dose was never quite high enough before. And mm-hmm. once I stabilized a little, you know, things started working out really well. And I got a really great job, and I started working in, um, I started working in this really great restaurant, and. Um, I was doing really well, and the clinic was an hour away, and my ex-husband and I were going through some problems, and I didn't have a ride all of a sudden every day. Um, So then to be an hour away and scrounging a ride and trying to get there, it really started to interfere with my treatment. So buprenorphine was really new then, and I had gotten on the list to get on it and um, was reducing my dose in order to be able to get on it. And um, I was down to Mm -hmm. 50 milligrams, and I ended up going out with a girlfriend of mine one night and sitting at a bar and drinking, and uh, the the bartender forgot to put my food order in, like, two different times. And by the time it got there, I'd had so many drinks I didn't even eat. Um, And the night just got crazier and crazier, and I ended up, passing out my front lawn and kicking a cop in the balls and was arrested for felony assault on an officer, public drunk, in possession of marijuana, that marijuana in my pocket. So I ended up detoxing in jail. And then my probation officer would not allow me to get back on methadone, not to get on Suboxone or anything. Um, And, you know, I struggled with that for a really long time. And, I was pretty much using alcohol instead and just pretty much to fill that void, I guess you could say, or um, to self-medicate or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up, and it was like I kept getting in trouble for drinking. I got arrested two more times for public drunk. Um, I got caught drinking with my probation three different times. You know, they would do the, the test that tests back 72 hours and, um, I kept extending my probation and extending my probation and extending my probation. And at that point, like, I had really only heard, like, yes, I knew about methadone and buprenorphine. And, um, you know, but really the only other thing that I had ever heard was abstinence. And I really didn't think there was any other way. And at that point, it didn't really make sense to me to get back on methadone or buprenorphine because I had been off for, you know, a while at this point. But, you know, I was still still struggling, and I was actually doing my community service for my probation at a Goodwill, and I was sorting through all their books for them, and as a writer and a reader, I was like, oh, this is a perfect little job you can give me, you know? And I found mm-hmm. Pat Denning's book, Over the Influence, and mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I noticed the cover, I'm like, oh, this looks interesting, so I ended up buying it and taking it home and reading it, and I was really, like, amazed that there was another way. 
And even mm. though I couldn't really practice this other way while I was on this court-ordered abstinence-based thing, it did give me some hope that if I could get through this BS, that I could figure out how to do it in a way that worked for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, somehow I ended up getting off probation. And, um, you know, then I kind of figured it out from there. You know, it wasn't smooth sailing at all times. You know, I had to figure out that I can't eat on that empty stomach or I can't drink on the empty stomach and, you know, kind of how to manage it. But um, I'm really thankful that I did find that and that I didn't end up, you know, still struggling and bouncing back and forth. Mm -hmm. So you're a moderate drinker or or control drinker at least. Yes. Yes, I am. And I mean, I love a glass of wine with dinner. I'm a foodie. (laughs) I can't give that up. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Do you use any cannabis or anything? I do, actually. A uh, big fan of that, actually. I actually have some chronic pain conditions. Um, I have chronic headaches, tension headaches, and I have sci- sciatica. Um, I and Even now, I do get a very, very small amount of hydrocodone for that. Um, mm. My doctor at one point was giving me 10 pills every three months. <laughs> And um, he's, sometimes he would do 30 every three months. And, you know, I, I think the the thing about it with me and, and controlling that is that the pain keeps me from doing things that I need. And if I were to want to get a buzz off those, ten, those hydrocodone, I have to take almost all 10 of them, you know. And then I would mm-hmm. have nine days out of those three months that I really needed it to work and didn't have it. So mm-hmm. it's really, to me, risk versus reward. You know, the reward of not being in pain is far, far greater to me than the reward of taking them all at once. Um, but I do, I have really found another thing that really helps me sleep at night with the pain is uh, edibles, marijuana. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really it really helps me sleep better, and it really, really does help the pain. Of course, I can't eat a brownie and work. I work in the kitchen. It makes me too tired. Um, mm. but it does really help me sleep. So, I mean, I smoke it too, but, you know, I think it's, I personally think that it's a great thing if, you know, if you, I guess if you can control it, is that what I'm trying to say, I guess? <laughs> I don't really well, know anyone yeah. who can't control it, so that doesn't totally sound right, but. Well, a lot of people, uh, you know, use the marijuana as an exit drug is what Amanda Ryman calls it. Uh, she's been doing a lot of studies on people that are getting off more problematic drugs like uh, opiates or cocaine or alcohol, people who have major alcohol problems, and they switch over to cannabis, and, uh, you know, suddenly they're not having these big problems anymore. I've actually seen that too with a lot of my um a lot of my old using friends. A number of them do still smoke. And I think that in many of them and I've heard many say that it's part of the reason that they don't relapse. You know, and here's another interesting thing is um of all my using friends from the days of Katrina, the ones that did not evacuate for the storm and remained in New Orleans, I would say the majority of those do not use anything to the to the point that they have a problem today. But a number of those that did evacuate still struggle with their addictions, 
which I think is really interesting. Was it the storm? Did it really change all of our lives that much, or is it just a random chance? I don't know. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. It really um, is. You know. mm-hmm. And, of course, as long as we're talking about cannabis, and I will say this cannabis is not for everyone because it's not for me. When I smoke it, it makes me depressed immediately when I smoke it. So I just I haven't touched it in decades. It's just I enjoyed it like when I was 20 for about one year, and then I was away from it for about six years, tried it again. I just cannot. I have terrible effects from it. So, Although I'm mm-hmm. totally in favor of uh, legalization, decriminalization, and medical use, I wouldn't be using it no matter how legal it was. Well, I guess it's good to know those kind of things. So, you know, so. Well, alcohol is my drug of choice, but, you know, I learned how to get it under control so it doesn't cause any problems. Well, that's, I mean, that's what you have to do, you know. I mean, I, although heroin is, was definitely my drug of choice, I would say that alcohol was such an integral part of everything living in New Orleans that it's, you know, I mean, I, I guess in a way it could have been my drug of choice because it looking, do you want, which do I not want to give up? <laughs> that was definitely it, you know. Just the thought of giving mm-hmm. up that glass of wine with dinner was just not something I was willing to live with. Mm-hmm. Well, I also read Pat Denning's book, and that was huge influence on me. And, in fact, it was huge influence on the, the book that I wrote for people that drink. It uh, really incorporates a lot from Pat's stuff. Uh, she's probably my biggest influence, I think. She's really great. You know, I've listened to her at a couple conferences and everything, too, even talking about other things, and she's just really amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, but, yeah, I definitely about... say her book changed my life. Oh, me too. Now, tell me about the PTSD. You were getting some medication for that in the psych ward. <laughs> Did you get any other kind of treatment, uh, other kind of talk therapy or anything, or did you, you still take medication for it? Did it go away? Did you still have it? Um, it went away, and it was it's never, ever returned. Um, the medication stabilized me in the physical part. Um, they were giving me, and it was a ton of medication they put me on at first. I was taking in the morning 100 milligrams of Seroquel and 50 milligrams of Trazodone and a Klonopin. Um, And then at night, I was taking 300 milligrams of Seroquel and 200 of Trazodone and Klonopin. The Klonopin was PRN, pretty much. Um, But Mm -hmm. once I started taking that and was able to stop pacing and calm down and, like, I mean, not be crawling out of my skin, it did end up going away. Um, I saw a few psychotherapists when I was in the psych ward. But when I got out, I returned to New Orleans, and I didn't continue my treatment. I didn't even get my prescriptions refilled. Um, and a piece of me at first was really scared that it would come back and all of that, but it never has, thankfully. Um, I later did a lot of talk therapy um, when I was on probation, and it was required. And I ended up at one place with a counselor that I really didn't mesh with, and it wasn't really helping, but I ended up switching and got this really great counselor and at that point, I kind of saw the benefits of therapy, and I actually still am in therapy today. I don't go hardly, like I go once a month now, 
But um, when I was mm-hmm. pregnant with my child, I went weekly. Um, I wasn't working and had a little bit of depression and stuff. So I personally think that, you know, anyone that is interested in psychotherapy, it's really a great thing. Yeah, it's really important to get someone that you can connect with, to have a therapeutic alliance, because without that, it just doesn't do anything. Yes, and my first counselor that I had was so um, 12-step driven, and she would just criminalize alcohol all the time. And she would, like, talk about how she would go to restaurants and be looking around to see what everybody else was drinking. And, like, you know, for me, who was not wanting to give up my drinking, I just really didn't – I just couldn't connect with her at all because she was just demonizing it at all times, you know. Oh, I had a couple therapists like that. I had one guy, a couple guys, all they did was spend the session, you know, saying that I had to go to these meetings and, you know. And one guy said, if you don't go, I'm going to, he said, I'm going to commit you to uh, Anoka, Minnesota, which is this residential treatment thing. And I said, "What what are you talking about? You can't commit me. You have no power to do this. I do have the power to fire you, and you're fired. <laughs> yeah, I right. I saw him. Yeah, I mean, really. what does he think? He's not my parent. Uh, you know, he's not a relative. Doctors can't commit you, especially, you know, I, I was not on any probation or anything. I was there, vol- I was there voluntarily because I wanted to uh, work on depression. I used to have a lot of depression really bad. And, you know, I wanted somebody to work on that. And, you know, as soon as he heard that I I drank and that I had been through uh, addiction treatment, it was like, you have to go to these meetings. You have to go to these meetings. It's like, no. Not only do they make me depressed, they drive me to drink. Exactly. Well, and it's one of the things I love about the harm reduction approach is it's so much more patient-driven, you know, and that we do are able mm-hmm. to decide our own goals. And I, I really don't like how... You know, and also in harm reduction, um, you know, we look more at our level of success in harm reduction has to do with more with reducing the harm. And we also look at, you know, how someone's doing in their life, which I think should be more important. With abstinence-based treatment, there, you know, there's one goal, and that is to not use anything. And it's black and mm-hmm. white, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter you know, to someone in an abstinence-based program, if you are on methadone and have gotten a great job and gotten your children back and graduated college, like all of that counts for nothing. Or if you've done all of these things and you decide to start moderately drinking again, in an abstinence-based structure, you're a complete failure. But if you ask me, the person that has gotten their kids back and gotten a great job and finished school and started a nonprofit or whatever it is that they might have done is far more successful than the person that is still miserable and can't get their kids back but still hasn't had a drink in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I just think, mm-hmm. you know, our goals, we need to set our own goals. And how else are we going to achieve them, you know? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, it, other forms, you know, the, the rest of psychotherapy, you know, the, the client-driven approach is really pretty much the standard. Everybody knows that's the right thing. But as soon as somebody has a substance problem, it's suddenly this authoritarian, you're going to do what we say. And, you know, we can tell it's been a complete and total failure. 
um, you know, whenever we try to measure one of these treatment programs against, you know, a control group that doesn't get any treatment, well, they do about the same because the normal thing is that people will change on their own for the better. People will stop on their own or control their substance use on their own. Um, I mean, the new studies are showing that the, for alcohol dependence, the lifetime recovery rate is 90% without any treatment at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's so normally people... Yeah. Yeah, people get older, they say, I don't want to do this shit anymore. I mean, the half-life <laughs> for alcohol dependence is 14 years. So, you know, the average drunk stays drunk for 14 years before he decides to change. Right. It's a long time. It's a long time, but people get older and they say, you know, screw this shit. I'm done with this. I can't deal with this anymore. And mm-hmm. they, they change. They either cut back or they quit or whatever works best for them. Yes, and I think also, you know, there's some people that will try a moderation approach and realize that that isn't for them, and then they switch to abstinence, which is great, you know. But I think Mm -hmm. to force everyone to go only to abstinence is not okay. Yeah, and then there's the whole religious aspect of the whole thing, too. I mean... That was just oh, it is just yes, uh, yes. I'm I not grew up really. Uh, I grew ahead. up in a fundamentalist church, so this whole thing was so fundamentalist, and so you're going to believe in God the way we tell you to. Oh, God could be anything you want, except it has to be exactly the way we want you to believe in it. You know what the mm-hmm. what is this? <laughs> yes, I didn't grow up uh, with a lot of uh, religion, so to be told that I had to find that in order to get better was really a foreign idea to me. And I also Mm. think the other concept that I really struggled with in 12-step groups was the concept of powerlessness. Because we're Mm -hmm. raised in a world that power is revered, power is important, you know, and Mm -hmm. to be powerless is also not okay. You know, and I think Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I found that I after I got in therapy and everything, um, I found becoming empowered really helped me. Being able to do my ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy and figure out where I stood Mm -hmm. and to be able to empower myself with the tools to, you know, whether it's just get through my day or make a great accomplishment. I just think empowerment is much, much better than powerlessness. And I think a lot of young people today really don't get the powerlessness concept. And again, it just power is in our society. Well, to me, only a cult would say, you know, you have to, t- you have to say you're powerless or you'll die. Because, you know, they want, AA wants you to turn the power over to them. They always say, turn your life and will over to God. And if you don't believe in God, then make AA your God. Make AA your higher power. Turn your life and will over to AA. What the, what the fuck is that? That is just It's trading so one addiction foolish. for another. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. trading your obsession with drugs into your obsession with the 12 steps. And I see that a lot, too. You know, and, and the whole part of not wanting to get out, you know, not wanting to get out in the world, you know. Um, I was told at one point that my problem was that I, you know, still connected with people from the old world and that I should never have anyone in my home 
that is not an AA member. And I was just mm-hmm. bored by that. You know, I'm never supposed to, if my neighbor wants to bring me a cup of sugar, I'm not allowed to have her step in. You know, and, and that's just that whole alienating and isolating piece of it. It just keeps you from getting back out in the world. And for me, I personally couldn't truly be whole again if I wasn't interacting in the world. And, you know, today I work with a a mobile harm reduction unit, and uh, we go out in the community and um, we give out harm reduction supplies and harm reduction information and, you know, try to help the drug-using community. And it's one of the best things I've ever done. And I had a 12-stepper tell me that I was headed for relapse, that the only reason I was interested in doing this was because I wanted to relapse, because I was hanging out in old places with old people, and that that's all that was. And I was just like, all right, buddy, talk to me in 15 years. We'll see who's, who's you know, <laughs> still in a good spot, because I think it's going to be me, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah, that really just floored me, the fact that, I don't know who who would work harm reduction units if it wasn't ex drug users, <laughs> you know. Well, so, very yeah, few people. Yeah, I mean, I worked in needle exchange too. Uh, you know, the the only drug I the only drug I ever really liked was alcohol, and like the only other one I ever did was marijuana for a little while when I was twenty, but I can't do it anymore. But I I worked in needle exchange because this was how to learn harm reduction. I knew that I had to. Uh, you know, find a way to bring harm reduction to alcohol, and that was my whole motivation. But that is, was just, it's one of the most rewarding things I ever did in my life because, you know, drug users are so happy to find someone that they can say, I'm a drug user and be treated as a human being because everybody else in society would treat them like shit if they tell the truth and say, I use heroin, you know? Yes, exactly. And I think also there's this, those few lives that you touch in doing stuff like this where you know that you've really made a difference to that person. And when I first got in it, I thought about those few those few people that had touched my life in that way. And, um, you know, it's really amazing when you get to a point where you are that person for someone else. And I think the non-judgmental part is a big piece of it. I had an encounter with a pregnant girl um, who was still using when I was pregnant. And, um, of course, I didn't know she was pregnant because she wasn't very far along. But she ended up talking to me about it and telling me that she just found out and she didn't know what to do. And, you know, I tried to connect her up with the methadone clinic and talk to her a little bit about it. But I didn't judge her at one moment, you know, when I told her. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, you do what you need to do. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I don't think she, she was thinking of an abortion or thinking of keeping them. And um, we just had a long talk. There was no judgment, and I didn't look down on her at all and totally related and connected with her, and we talked about our own experiences. And she ended up coming back several weeks later to let me know that she'd gotten on methadone and that she just found out she was pregnant with twins. So, um, you know, it's like those little I, – I, she'll probably always remember that talk with me just as I always will remember the talk with a certain doctor when I went to the hospital for an abscess at one point. You know, so mm-hmm. it's those little things that I think are really powerful moments. I think absolutely they are. Um, well, I think I'm running out of topics, so I'm going to ask, what do you want to leave us with this evening? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really don't know. Uh 
I really don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, well, I mean, I can say that I think that I think that uh, you know, I think harm reduction is such a great thing, and I'm really glad that it's kind of making its way around in the world today. And um, I'm really glad that I found it before it was a buzzword that we do here now. You know, before I knew what harm reduction was. And it's really mm-hmm. changed my life. So, you think you're going to make it to Baltimore to the conference or not? I already have a plane ticket. So oh, yes, well, I'm there. there. I'm then. so excited. Yeah, I'm going I for the be... um, harm harm reduction group. So you're going to be yeah, there. Yeah, I'll be I'll be doing two presentations. Oh, wonderful! Wonderful. I will be selling some really nice gear and uh, hobnobbing. (laughs) Oh, you will be. Is that Austin harm reduction there that you're with? It is. It is. We actually have. We ordered a bunch of different stuff to bring up there, too. We got a new design for one of our t shirts. It's really great. It's a sugar skull. And, you know, where the sugar skulls have the spider webs at the top and the bottom, it's actually needles that make the ends of the spider web. And we've got our other two designs. One is the Virgin of Guadalupe statue. I guess it's a virgin. But instead of the background, there's needles. And then we have one with a pinup girl riding a syringe that says, fuck safe and shoot clean. But we also have... Do you, uh, do you know... Do you, do you, I have to interrupt you. Do you know what I'm wearing right now? Are you I am wearing, wearing that shirt? I am wearing fuck safe, shoot clean right now. So, yeah, I have two of them. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, we're bringing some hoodies up, some lightweight hoodies, zip-up hoodies, and some beanies and stickers and all kinds of stuff. So. Yeah, so that's exciting. Oh. That's one of my favorite shirts. I get some really interesting looks. I did an event for the for the coalition um, at a, a thrift store. This was, I guess, about a year and a half ago. And I had on the Fuck Safe Shoot Clean tank top, and then my husband and me and my son was four at the time. We went out to this family restaurant right after. And, like, I mean, I don't even think about it. I wear it half the time, you know. And, like, the looks I got in there from it. And I was like, why is everybody looking at me like this, you know? And then I realized, and I was like, oh, because I just walked into a family restaurant with this on my shirt. <laughs> you know, I'm sure they were like, what is that? <laughs> you know. Yeah, sometimes I forget I got it on, and I suddenly get this look on the street, and it's like, oh, oh, that's right, I'm wearing that shirt today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when people kind of look at you like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, so we're excited about coming up to Baltimore. It's going to be cold, though, and none of us that are coming up are ready to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, it's only October, so it might still be warm. Um, to me, fifty degrees is cold. <laughs> yeah, to me, fifty degrees is cold. It's, I mean, it's ninety-five right now in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, see, I'm from Wisconsin, so for me, New York City is a warm climate. Yeah. <laughs> right. So tell us what, again. What's the name of your book? It's called Heroin, Hurricane Katrina, and the Howling Within: An Addiction Memoir. Okay, so everybody, you can go to Amazon and you can get that book. And I think we're going to close up for the night. So, everyone, uh, thanks for being our guest, Eliza Player, and everyone, good night.